team. We go as a medical team, really a team of teams, a medical team that's made up of medical corps officers, nurse corps officers, lab, pharmacy, x-ray techs, administrators, so forth and so on. You function as a team regardless of what you've been asked to do, regardless of the nature of the deployment. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode of War Docs, we are privileged to speak with retired Major General Dr. Jeffrey Clark. Dr. Clark is a board-certified family medicine physician after completing his residency training in the Army in California. He also has a master's in public health from the University of Washington and a master's in strategic studies from the Army War College. General Clark has held numerous significant positions throughout his military career and has deployed multiple times, including missions to Iraq, Kosovo, and in support of Hurricane Katrina. Prior to his well-deserved retirement, he served as the Chief of the Army Medical Corps. You can read his full bio on wardoxpodcast.com. Welcome to Wardox. It's a pleasure to have Major General Dr. Jeffrey Clark on the podcast today. General Clark, thanks for joining us. Doug, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. What brought you to military medicine and why you ultimately decided to have military medicine be your career? You know, I wanted to go to college. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, so I went looking for a way to pay for it. Saw a, a little flyer for an ROTC scholarship and a Sports Illustrated and filled it out and eventually got an ROTC scholarship to pay for college. And then when I was accepted to medical school, kind of in the same situation, I took the HPSP scholarship. I, I had no I had no debt, right? I owed time, didn't owe money. And the time turned out to be fun. And when it came time for, you know, my obligation was up. So when I just decided this is good, we like it. And I stayed. And next thing you know, you're in for 35 years. So you had deployed with the 82nd Airborne to Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Tell us about your uh, emotions as you did that deployment. And what are some interesting stories you have from that time period? I know it was in August 1990. It was pretty short notice. All of a sudden, we were going to send the military presence to Saudi Arabia to support Kuwait. It came on very short notice, and the 82nd was the first unit to go. And so I got a call from George Waitman, who was division surgeon at the time, saying, Jeff, we need you to deploy with us. And I'd never done anything like that at all. Hadn't thought about it, hadn't prepared for it. And so basically, I went in. He told me what I had to do. I, I was able to come home and pack some stuff. And literally, uh, I was gone for the next seven or eight months. That was a brand new experience, right? Leave your family and newborn and three-year-old. But that marked me in many ways because, you know, it made you think, well, you need to be ready. But you also need to realize that you're, the emotions that you had are the same emotions that others are going to have when you ask them to go and deploy. Saudi Arabia was an interesting assignment because we basically we went and created a presence and then that presence built up over time. It was multinational. It was quite an alliance that the Bush administration put together. And then finally we invaded and the invasion was over in 100 hours. And at the time, that was a big deal because we had not done anything like that for a long, long time. Compared 
to the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan today uh, that, are, that have gone on over the last two decades, I think that deployment from a clinical perspective clearly pales in comparison. But I think one of the things I learned was we're there to support, right? The medics, we medics are there to support and support the warfighter and what they're going to do. And if that means that we have to sit still for an extended period of time until the conditions are right to do the next direct operational movement, then that's what we do. So in those hundred hours that you were, that we were invading Iraq, what was the, the feeling of the units, particularly the medical teams, as this hundred hours was unfolding? It was very interesting because it was a bombing campaign that went on for a couple of weeks or more, and we got reports of the damage that was being done to the Iraqi forces who were certainly quite ill-prepared compared, compared to us. We knew when we were going to go, and we basically, you know, it was a huge caravan invasion up into Kuwait. We saw very few casualties from, uh, mili- from, army, from uh, U.S. casualties. Uh, we, we saw none, minor stuff. We did see some Iraqi prisoners who were basically in just very bad physical condition in terms of trauma. Where is medical in an invasion like that? How far are they from the tip of the spear? And is there a lot of danger to you know the docs that are out there? We went up when we were part of the main force. We were actually a, the medical company I was with, Charlie 307 Med Battalion, was in direct support of 2nd Brigade. And so the company was integrated in within the brigade. And so I couldn't tell you how close we, we were to the front, but 2nd Brigade had a lead role. And so we were, we were, we were pretty far forward. I guess, fortunately for us, the, the enemy that we encountered, um, was not in very good position to, to respond. What do you think was the difference between the uh, mentality of the Iraqis during the Desert Storm and the the second invasion after 9/11 in 2003? It was a very different fight because the coalition in Desert Shield Desert Storm was taking on the Iraqis as an army, right? It was a complete alliance. It was it was multinational and so forth and it was taken on and it was actually an entity that you could attack and defeat. You could defeat their armor, right? You could you could defeat their units. When I got there, it was really controlling the insurgency. And the mission that we had in Iraq was to provide detainee health care. So in the in, in OIF, you, your unit, the your combat surgical hospital was charge of detainee health care around Abu Ghraib. Are there any stories that come to mind that just really kind of encapsulates that experience for you? I was the commander of Task Force 21, 21st Cash, and we went into Iraq in 2006. I, I felt very good about us clinically. We had deployed to Katrina with our, as part of the hurricane support to Katrina with the very same profits that we deployed with like six months later into Iraq. And so I knew the clinicians, I knew the unit you know, the 21st cash proper. I knew the Profus came. I rounded out unit. I knew us well, and I had a tremendous amount of respect and confidence in our clinical capability. We trained very hard to be able to defend ourselves, which is what you could do under the Geneva Convention. And so we, I thought we were prepared to do that. The thing that was most challenging was caring for detainees is, I mean, they're they're our fellow human beings, and, and we were committed to giving them the absolute best care we possibly could. And the care we gave them was very high quality of, and very complex patients, both outpatient and inpatient. Anyone that's worked with taking care of prisoners or detainees, that dynamic 
is, is has to be compassionate. It has to be caring. You have to give folks the very best care you possibly can, but they're on the other side of a wire and they're detained for a reason. And so I, what we worked on and what we stressed, and I spent a lot of my time walking around the, the, the detainee compounds, just checking on our troops uh, to see how they were doing. Not to make sure they were giving good clinical care, but to just make sure after you've done that type of thing for a while that you get that you weren't getting tired, you weren't going to let emotions get in the way of the, the privilege of providing health care. You mentioned some complicated cases that you came across during that mission. Are any come to mind that you wouldn't mind sharing? Well, first of all, at Abu Ghraib, we, we were quite isolated. You convoy in there, but most folks that came to that came to see us flew in. And what's interesting with the detainee healthcare is that the other combat support hospitals, the 28th that we were in theater with and the 10th and others, when they would receive a, de- a detainee, they would stabilize the detainee and then they would transfer them to us. That's how we got all, that's how we got all of our patients. Really, they were transferred in into our hospital in addition to the detainees that were not injured or sick that were detained and brought into the compound. But then they were ours. We took care of them from the time they arrived until they were well enough to leave the hospital. So we did the, you know, the long-term rehab. We had we had individuals that were on a ventilator, you know, for weeks at a time. We had a couple of civilian patients, a, a 12-year-old girl that was severely burned that we took care of from time that they we received them until they were able to return to their family. Very rewarding in many ways because you get to see folks get better. But that's not what most combat support hospitals saw, right? Most most saw emergent trauma that maybe something had been done at a battalion aid station or whatever. They were flown in. They did uh, the combat support hospitals, FSTs, did an absolutely astounding job of stabilization, managed that patient for two or three days, and then they were flown out on a C-17 with an ICU in the back of it to launch stool and on to Walter Reed. Our mission, because we couldn't evacuate out of country, was to take provide the full range of care for them. So you must have had a you know bunch of doctors that had no experience with detainee care and this was completely new. How did they adapt to that and what did you think of their performance? Well first of all I thought their performance was absolutely astounding. I mean that, that's a really hard mission and we did it for a year. We spent time with with a with one of the combat support hospitals that preceded us. And we learned, took a lot of lessons from them. They actually documented a lot of lessons learned, but we also spent time talking to their leaders who came and visited our hospital when we were preparing. We rehearsed what we were going to, what we were doing. You know, we called it providing uh, medicine in the wire because you literally, for outpatient things, you would, the detainee would be on one side of the, of the fence and the, the medic would be on the other side of the fence. And we would through a translator, understand what their challenge was. This is outpatient care, obviously. So it, it was challenging, but very rewarding. And I could not be more proud of, of the team that we had. So you mentioned that you were part of Hurricane Katrina, which for those listeners that may not know or remember Hurricane Katrina, but it was a massive Category 5 hurricane that took landfall in New Orleans in 2005. And the flood protection system or the levees that was in New Orleans failed, causing extensive flooding in the city of New Orleans and the surrounding areas. 
And so that forced the military to send units there to not only rescue people, but also to provide medical care because the hospitals were being flooded. Uh, over 1,800 people died during that. Tell us what it was like to be there during that time period and some interesting scenarios and situations you had to work yourself and your unit through. This was a domestic enemy, which happened to be a hurricane, which had caused significant damage to one of the cities of the United States of America. And as you mentioned, killed you know over a, th- over a thousand people and injured many, forced many out of their homes. The devastation in the Ninth Ward and other parts of New Orleans were incredible. The first medical unit that went in was the 14th Combat Support Hospital out of Fort Benning. They provided the emergent response. They had to deploy... I think it was in February of six. So we relieved them in maybe late September, early October. So they could go back to Fort Benning and prepare to deploy. We got there in October and took over their mission. And basically we, we had our, our combat sport hospital set up in the uh, convention center. And our job was twofold. One was really just to provide emergent care for the city of New Orleans. Like you mentioned, the, the hospital charity hospital was flooded and uh, essentially has not been reopened. That building stands empty today. Particularly their public hospital system was was devastated. And so we filled that gap for emergent care. We saw overdoses and some trauma and some other things. But one of the most interesting things we did was we met with other healthcare leaders in the city of New Orleans and figured out how we could work together as one team. Tell us what it was like being in the convention center, providing medical care to people, all these people who had been displaced from their homes. First of all, they were very appreciative. Second of all, again, we were very good at what we did. We had some great physician, you know, medical corps officers, nurse corps officers, lab, pharmacy, x-ray. I mean, it was a small hospital. Something very stabilizing about a, a professional military presence. I think folks feel reassured when they see the uniform of the U.S. military show up um, and because they know how good we are and that we can, we can stabilize things and get things back into working order and, and, and bring order back to what is oftentimes chaos. And providing medical care is obviously a critical piece of that. So I saw on your resume or your, your biography that you had been a part of Task Force Falcon in Kosovo. And for the listeners that don't know what that was, that was in 1999, in the summer of 1999, the military forces from Yugoslavia went against the Kosovo Liberation Army with uh, nearly daily engagements. And the United Nations and the U.S. military participated in peacekeeping operations. Tell us about that experience. We were at Camp Bond Steel, which is in Kosovo, which is kind of the main the main point where the where the U.S. forces were. First Infantry Division had the lead. The hospital was a jointly run hospital between U.S. and Brits. So we had U, uh, Brit uh, physicians and nurses and admin and lab integrated in with us, which made it even an even better mission. Our mission, primary mission was to be there, you know, to support our troops and, you know, allied troops. So we had the only, the only real hospital. So we supported the Greeks, um, supported the Poles. Uh, the Russians were to our east and we had minimal interaction with the Russians because of the dynamic. And, uh, we saw some trauma. Most of the, 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 the more, more serious cases we saw were actually from locals uh, who were eligible for care for, you know, life, limb, or eyesight. So when I joined the military in 1999, I remember the focus of what I was learning at the time was, in fact, peacekeeping and largely related to that in Kosovo. 
fast forward, I'd been in the army for two years and we've been attacked by terrorists. And now we have to completely change our mindset to more of a combat operations. So in the future, it is likely that military physicians are going to encounter the need to be in peacekeeping operations again, because of just like your humanitarian example, we had COVID and then you had Katrina. Tell us what we might be able to understand from a peacekeeping aspect that we may not appreciate given that we've been in a different type of military engagement for the last 20 years. I guess my first thought is that fundamentally, we need to be clinically very good at what we do. You should bring that skill set to whatever operation you're asked to bring, to serve in, and then you can apply it as needed, right? You may not see as much trauma in a peacekeeping operation, but you but you may, but you're, not, you're probably not going to see as much as you saw in Iraq in 2005, 2006, but you should bring the same skill set. The other thing I think that's important, and I mentioned this previously, is to think of the concept as team. We go as a team, we go as a medical team, really a team of team, a medical team that's made up of medical corps officers, nurse corps officers, lab, pharmacy, x-ray techs, administrators, so forth and so on you function as a team regardless of what you've been asked to do, regardless of the nature of deployment. And you function as a team of teams because you you rarely will send the medics out all by themselves, right? When not, we were in Kosovo, we were part of a task force Falcon. We went to Katrina, we were part of a task force. We went to Iraq, we were part of something, you know, a, a, a larger unit. But you you bring that skill set that is absolutely critical in any scenario, I guess one of the differences, and maybe it's not a major difference, is that medics can make a huge difference in things like peacekeeping and stabilization operations because we generally bring goodness, if that makes sense what I'm saying. I'll use Kosovo as an example. One of the things I spent a lot of my time and energy with was creating conditions for the Albanians Albanians and the Serbs to work together in the same clinic to provide health care in a certain province, right? We could go and speak the same language because the Hippocratic Oath applies to everybody. Everybody understood the Hippocratic Oath. And so you could use goodness in the fact that we were there to, to, to make things better and to, to heal and to prevent injury. And you could build on that, um, where some of our other, you know, our combat arms colleagues, not that they can't do it. It's not, it's, it's not obvious. Sometimes it's not obvious. And we can make inroads with building relationships that um, oftentimes others, others just can do. So you have a unique military career. It's spanned Desert Storm, Desert Shield with 82nd Airborne, Task Force Falcon in Kosovo, Katrina, Iraq. Tell us what is your most memorable clinical case from any of those deployments? I'm not able to give you a specific case that I had hands on. I did have my hands on some of those cases, but the things that struck me were the high quality, compassionate care that we provided over an extended period of time. They were detained in the process of trying to cause U.S. service members harm. They got wounded and we had the privilege of taking care of them and healing them, which is, I just described the medical profession. I actually just described military medicine. So I can imagine that when you first were taking care of these significantly injured detainees, that there was some significant emotions among the people on your team, because these are enemy combatants that we're dealing yeah. with. 
How did you control the emotions of your medical team? And how did you control your own emotions when caring for people you know were trying to harm American soldiers? It's a very good question, and it's hard. We worked very hard at taking care of each other. I'll share one thing that we did, which I think was absolutely very good. It was not my idea, so I can say it was a very, very good idea. We developed something called a prosperity plan, which had four domains, personal, professional, spiritual, and family-slash-relationship. And we actively created conditions so that folks could grow in each of those areas, however they chose. And I think that was significant because it was a tangible, structured way to take care of each other. Because what we did when we were taking care of detainees was part. And I think there were some tough times. I think it was obvious that we that we truly cared about each other, that the leadership cared about folks, and that we were there to thrive, not merely survive that challenge. And when we came out on the other end, we would actually be better human beings, better soldiers, better family members than when we went. So in looking back at your career, you certainly have experienced stressful situations. And a lot of those were when you were in a position of leadership, which I think really increases that stress. And it's hard to find ways to maintain resilience. Is there anything that you can tell us about what you did to deal with stressful situations and and how you maintained your resilience? One of the things was you kind of have to pay attention to yourself and be, be introspective. I'll tell you a simple thing that I figured out as a battalion commander. I figured out that if I was, if I had something on my mind and I was walking fast, it meant that when I was going to get to where I was going in a hurry, and I probably was not going to slow down and be calm and thoughtful when I got there. That sounds incredibly simple, doesn't it? So what I learned to do was to slow myself down, to slow my walk down, which gave me more time to think about kind of the context of what I was getting ready to to look into or ask about. The other thing I did was, I mean, there was a time in my life, in my career, I was a fairly junior colonel where I was just not doing well psychologically. I had some anxiety. I stressed. I felt, I just felt uneasy. Things were just were not right. And I was given the opportunity. Actually, I sought the opportunity to see a behavioral health specialist, psychologist, but it helped level set me. It helped me understand myself a little better. I don't believe I would have been as successful moving forward in my career if I had not done that, because I think it it just level set me and helped me get get my frame of reference better. Uh, the other thing I do, and this goes back to the prosperity plan that I'm in for, is um, I and I to this day I do a daily devotional. I take about 15 minutes in the morning and I sit quietly and I do a devotional. And I encourage everyone to do that, whatever your spiritual uh, foundation is. I start my day that way. And I also learned that I, during the course of the day, I find a, a way to sit quietly and do relaxation technique. Just again, just to level set myself so that I'm, I'm better positioned as a leader, as a medical corps officer to listen and understand, to perceive and have gain insights and to make decisions. So one of the things kind of following you in your career, I've heard you talk many times about army values. And I think for most people, it's easy to understand things like personal courage and selfless service by those guys who are under fire, kicking down doors, dodging grenades. How do medical corps officers show those army values? And are there any stories that you might illustrate that? You mentioned personal courage. I think that's a great example. So I have rarely in my career, in my life, have I been 
in physical danger and had to go and do something that would have put me into even more danger. That's just not what I've been asked to do. I don't think that's what the, I don't think that's what we're talking about when we say personal courage. I think personal courage is having the personal courage to do what you know you need to do when you need to do it. It's having the personal courage to hold yourself accountable. It's, it's having the personal courage to speak up if things aren't right. If, uh, in patient care, uh, admit, it, admit a mistake something that could have gone better. We have opportunities to display personal courage on a daily basis, uh, particularly in the profession of, of medicine, particularly as medical corps officers. And I think that's what the expectation is. It's actually more than an expectation about it is we should not merely live the core values. We should role model the core value. As an officer in the United States Army, someone should be able to look at us, a peer, a colleague, a subordinate, a, a superior and they just see that that's what right looks like in terms of our core values. That's why we are medical corps officers and not doctors who happen to wear a uniform, because we have the privilege of serving two professions. And in my view, as an officer, it is upon us to role model those values that we're privileged to serve, that those that are privileged, that we're privileged to lead. I would like for you to tell us a story that reflects a moment in your life in the military where you said, this is why I joined the military. The invasion of Haiti, again, that's something that most folks won't, may not remember. This was in 19, was that 1994, maybe? We did a, a large airborne operation where we launched the aircraft to invade Iraq. And I was part of the, part of the invasion force. We were all in C-30s. And I remember getting on that aircraft thinking, well, this is Jeff, this is what you do, right? You've got to, you've got to be division surgeon and help plan the invasion Haiti, which is a fairly complex operation, plan the medical support for it. And now you're getting ready to jump in as a, really as a, as a medic, right? You're there. You, the main reason, one of the main reasons you're going into the invasion is you're bringing, uh, you got a, you got a combat medic. And it, and I just remember thinking, this is daggone it. This is, this is what we do. And I get to be part of it. And I get to be part of it. Uh, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, to be very good, to be part of a team that's very good at what we do, it totally and very professional. So one of the things that occurs with military officers is there is a lot of sacrifice that's given to the organization. And one could say it's taken away from their family. Tell us how you learned to take care of your family. I think sometimes I did it better than others. If you start with the fundamental truth that there is no greater patriot than the family of American servicemen, because we do ask a whole lot of our families. Sue did the math. We lived in like 25 different houses in 35 years or something like that. Some of it was just across down the road. That's a lot of moves. The other thing I'll just mention, and this is from when I was the chief of the medical corps branch at HRC, when I would talk to officers, there was a, we had a, a, a pyramid of how we would think about next assignments. And one side of the pyramid was the needs of the Army. And the other side of the pyramid was what that officer needed to do next for professional development. What was their next assignment so they could grow into the needs of the Army and what does that officer need? But the base of that foundation, the base of that pyramid was, uh, was, was family. What are the needs of your family? Where are you at right now with your family situation? Um, and, 
as chief of medical corps branch, I knew what the army needed and I had a pretty good idea of what that officer ought to do, regardless of their branch, surgeon or family physician or whatever. But I did not know their family. And so I would begin the conversation with asking them about family. And I would say, where's your family at right now? And what do you, what do you need for your family? It doesn't mean I was always able to get it for them, but it does mean that it became a significant part of the conversation so that we could work together to find a needs of the army, rewarding experience, but also something that would, that would serve their family. Something about your military career that you'd want your family in the future, maybe a hundred years from now to know about you and what you did in the military. I just think it was that I was able to be part of something that was bigger than me, do it as part of a team and do it and do it well and be respected uh, for having done so. I think the things that I get the most reward from now is when I hear from folks that I've served with and they and we're able to express a mutual respect and affection for each other based on times that we were we were together. So I guess what I want them to remember was that he was a good officer, he was a good medical corps officer, and that he seemed to be fairly well respected by those he got to serve alongside. Well, sir, we just want to really thank you for your time and your insight on Warlock's podcast. And uh, just thanks for being part of this, sir. Hey, Doug, thank you. And I appreciate what you and Wayne are doing. This is important. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Wardock's Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.